you have your Bibles, please join me, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. If you're our guest today, uh, we are delighted that you're with us. Uh, I'm an expository preacher. I just uh, start in a book and we move forward. There are times where uh, I do some topical stuff, but it's always uh, from the position of exposition. Uh, so we have been going through this wonderful letter that uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And uh, it's a very interesting letter to say the least. It has a theme, the letter, this theme uh, of, the, of the letter that he sent to the church at Corinth uh, has to do with commitment. He wants them to be more committed to Jesus Christ than anything else. It seems that the church at Corinth were committed to a lot of things, but they weren't so seriously committed to Christ as they should be. And when you look at this book and you see that the overarching theme is commitment, you can see it can be divided into two categories. Verses 1 through 6 is one category. And then verses 6 to the end of the letter is the second category. The first category deals with a visit that came from Chloe's house. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul is in Ephesus. Someone from Chloe's house, a delegation, maybe, I don't know, maybe they were going on vacation to Ephesus. I don't know what they were doing. But they came over to where Paul was. Paul inquired of them, how's the church doing? Now remember, this church was founded in Corinth, which was equivalent to the Las Vegas uh, of our day. I mean, it was absolutely, incredibly worldly. Uh, what happened in Corinth didn't stay in Corinth. It went all the way around the world. They heard it in Ephesus. I mean, it was an absolute mess what was going on there. Uh, but we find that Paul, in listening to what Chloe had to say and asking, hey, what's going on at the church? Chloe told him, and that was part of the motivation in his heart as the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul to write this letter to the church at Corinth. And the first six chapters deal with what the report was that came from Chloe's household. So you think about what we've already been through here in this book. In chapter 1, Paul talked about thankfulness. He talked about how he was committed to thankfulness. Uh, and what he was trying to do was get them in a position to be thankful, uh, to, that they're a lighthouse right there in Corinth. And, and then he moved forward from there, and he talked about unity. 25% of the book of 1 Corinthians is about unity. Paul seriously wanted the church to stop being divided and unify around the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel and go in the world for Christ. So 25% of the book is on unity, and he dealt with that. We dealt with unity throughout the course of these first few chapters. And then Paul deals with servanthood. He says it's so vitally important that you be more committed to being a servant. And we use the illustration that he used in the text of an under rower, someone that uh, was a slave and that has surrendered and has come to Jesus Christ and goes down into the gallows and he puts his hand on the oar and he willingly rows in the same direction as Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation and we're rowing together in the church. He said we need to be committed to that as a church. Uh, and then last week he switched gears. Uh, we looked at this passage of scripture and saw that Paul had to deal with the topic uh, of this man who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. It was a terrible, awful thing. And so he used this occasion in chapter 5 to deal with the Corinthians' morality. And he says, you need to be more committed to Christ in your morality. You ought not act like the lost people act. You have Holy Spirit inside of you. Jesus Christ is your Lord. 
It's not, he says it's not even mentioned among the Gentiles. Lost people don't even act this way. And so uh, he gives a real stern command what the church is to do in regard to this individual, in regard to morality. Now remember what Paul just said about this. Paul said you ought to put this person out of the church in regards to not excommunication, but hand him over to the devil and let the flesh be consumed with sin so that he'll come to his senses and come back to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here in the text. But what's fascinating is that he switches gears in chapter 6 in regards to morality, and he's, in, he's upset because they wouldn't do anything about this guy that was having this illicit relationship, but the church was going to the court and bringing other believers into the court system of ungodly, unregenerate, unrighteous judges on frivolous matters. And Paul was scratching his head, said, I don't understand you, church. I, I don't understand that you won't do anyone, anything with this guy. You're giving him wedding gifts, and he's in this illicit relationship with his stepmom, but you're taking each other to court over frivolous little things. Let's notice what Paul has to say about suing other believers this morning. If you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Look at verse 1, chapter 6. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more uh, the things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgment of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge whom are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother go against brother, or brother go, or goeth to law with brother. And uh, that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you rather take wrong? Why do you not rather, excuse me, why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong, ye defraud, and that and your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor uh, effeminate, that is, uh, uh, men having sex with men, uh, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by His Spirit, by the Spirit of our God. Man, that's some strong words. Let me just say something about this passage. Uh, that's a rated R passage almost. Good, not, I mean, can you believe that? You may be seated. Let's ask God's help in this passage. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray you would speak truth into our hearts. Strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us. And if there be one lost, I pray for salvation. We love you, and we thank you for what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, America is no stranger to frivolous lawsuits. 
these are some true frivolous lawsuits that have occurred in the United States. Have you heard about this? Two criminals broke into a home in the middle of the night. They were pillaging through the home while the homeowners slept. And as the homeowners were sleeping, one of the criminals tripped and fell and got a laceration. They immediately left the house, went to the hospital. The next day, the criminals went to an attorney and filed a lawsuit against the homeowners for unsafe living conditions. It's true. Here's another one. A man tried to iron his shirt while his shirt was on, the, on his back. He suffered severe burns. He sued the iron company because he felt that the iron was too hot. Here's another one. Winnebago, the RV dealer, Winnebago was sued by a man who was driving to a destination, <laughs> set the cruise control, got up from the driver's seat, went to the kitchen, and made himself a sandwich. He never got to eat the sandwich. He had a wreck, and he sued Winnebago for not getting him to his destination. Here's another one. It's true. Many of us probably know the most well-known, what we had considered frivolous lawsuit uh, ever uh, documented. And that was Miss Stella Lineback, who was 80 years old, who spilt McDonald's coffee in her lap. How many of you heard that? Heard that one? Okay. Yeah, she was 80 years old. She got third-degree burns on her lap. Here's what you don't know about this story that wasn't publicized. What you didn't know is that Miss Lineback did not want to sue McDonald's. All she wanted was the $800 remaining to pay her medical bills. That's all she wanted. She had $800 left that her insurance didn't pay. She asked McDonald's to pay it. McDonald's did not pay it. And because they didn't pay it, uh, the lawyer came in and sued McDonald's. And uh, Miss Lieback won $2.8 million. Sometimes you think about frivolous lawsuits. Some are very easy. Some are very difficult. I want to make sure that we understand here in this text what Paul is not talking about. Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is not talking about taking non-Christians to court. He's not talking about that. Uh, there are times and there are occasions, and I thank God, and we have some in our church. We've got godly Christian lawyers. We've got godly Christian judges, and I praise God for that. But remember, when Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, there were not godly judges. As a matter of fact, in the city of Corinth, they had in the center of the city what was called the Bema Seat. And the Bema Seat's where the judge sat. And the judge would sit on the Bema Seat, and they would bring all of these lawsuits to him, and he would judge accordingly. He was lost. He was a lost man. Paul was upset because they were frivolous, little nitpicking things within the church. The church wouldn't do anything about this um, open sin that had occurred in the church, but they were taking each other to court over frivolous little things. So could you give us an illustration? Let me give you a present illustration. When Miriam and I got married, uh, we, we got to a place where we were ready to build a house. And an individual in the church, dear precious family, came to us and said, we have seven acres, one of our acres runs vertical, and uh, we want to give that to you if you'll be our neighbor. Oh, Miriam and I were so gracious to, to accept that. I mean, they were gracious to give it to us. We were thankful and accepted that. We built our house there. He said, there's only one problem. He said, the neighbor that your property line is going to, to join, says, I'm in a dispute with him, said he's moved the property line 36 inches. He says, we haven't gone to court, not planned on going to court, but you're going to need to do something about it. Well, 
what I did about it was nothing. I just left it alone. Why? Well, because 36 inches is not good enough to stand before a court and get judged. It's better just to let it go, period. It was a he said, he said kind of deal. And the bottom line was that 36 inches was full of woods. I mean, good grief. I mean, there wasn't nothing there. I mean, just probably an anthill. That anthill was an anthill without a country. I mean, they didn't know if they are on my property or his. But the bottom line was just, it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. And that's what you're going to see Paul talking about. So he's not talking about taking non-Christians to court. He's talking about taking Christians to court. But he's talking about taking them over frivolous little things. Let me say another thing he's not talking about. He is not talking about criminal cases. He's not talking about criminal cases here. Thank God for judges. Thank God for attorneys. Thank God for our civil system that God has put in place according to Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 that says God has ordained that court system to protect us. We are to use it when we need to use it. It should be used during criminal cases. Paul's not talking about it. So where do you get that? Look at verse 1 again. He says, Dare any of you having a matter against another. The term matter against another in this text means a disagreement, a dispute between two Christians that is minor. A minor dispute that they're having. And instead of going to their pastor, instead of going to their deacon, instead of going to their Sunday school teacher, instead of the two coming together and letting somebody come in and help them work this thing out, they took it straight to the court where the unrighteous judge in Corinth was judging them. So he's not talking about criminal cases. Number three, the third thing he's not talking about, he's not talking about the church, or he's not talking about church autonomy from the law. He's not talking about church autonomy from the law. Again, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. Acts chapter 25, verse 11 and 12. The powers that be are ordained by God. What Paul is saying here is we're not like Islam. Islam has Sharia law. They have their own law that they want to follow. They don't want to follow our court's laws. They want to follow their own Sharia law. Paul is saying, that's not us. We're Christians. We follow, we follow the law that God has given us in the land. We render to Caesar what Caesar's. We pay our taxes. We abide, we abide by the law. We are not separate creating our own law. And so he says here in this text, with that in mind, he talks about the reasons why we don't sue each other and the reasons why we stand together. That's what he talks about here in this text. See, there's two things that he talks about. Let me show them to you. Number one, the first thing I want you to see is the reasons why we don't sue each other. It's found in verses 1 through 8. As born-again children of God, we do not sue each other over frivolous matters because of three reasons. Number one, the first reason is eschatological. There is an eschatological reason as to why you and I do not sue each other. Now, I know what you're thinking. What in the world does eschatological mean? The word eschatology means the study of end times. What Paul is saying is there is an end times reason why you don't need to carry each other to court. Let's look at it and see what it is. It's found in verses 2 and 3. He says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest things? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things pertaining to this life. You hear what he's saying there? He says the two reasons why you don't need to take uh, individuals, Christians to court in an eschatological fashion is simply this. Number one, you're going to judge the world. 
Number two, you're going to judge angels. What's he referring to there? He's referring to the millennial reign of Christ. One day there's going to be a millennium. That is, Christ Jesus is going to reign here on this earth. Chapter uh, 6, verse 2 is talking about this eschatological question about the millennium and Christ reigning on this earth. Paul is saying that believers, you and I, as born-again children of God, will participate in judging the world. You can also find this, and I don't have time to turn there, but please study it when you, whenever you get the chance. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. This is where John states this very thing. We will reign and rule with Christ. So if the saints will someday help rule the entire earth, they surely are able to rule themselves within the church now. Paul also says this. Not only are you going to rule the world, you're also going to judge angels. You see it there in the text, right there. Right there he says it uh, in verse number 3. He says, know ye not that you'll judge angels? What's he referring to there? He's referring to that final judgment when a third of the angels stand before God and in some capacity, in some way, you and I will help and aid in the judgment of those angels. Those fallen angels. Those angels that have uh, forsaken their first love when it comes to God. He's talking about, Paul is hinting at the fact here, that there will, be, there will not be any different principles of wisdom and justice than we already have in Scripture right now. We have everything that we need to cast that judgment on those angels if the Lord Jesus were to come right at this very moment. So how is that? It is that way because the Holy Spirit dwells inside every believer. And as the Holy Spirit dwells inside each one of us, there is an eschatological reason as to why we don't need to sue each other. And that prime reason is this. We are capable of figuring it out and working it out ourselves. God has given you a pastor. God's given you deacons. He's given you a pastoral staff. And what Paul is saying is, stop accepting sin and stop taking people to court and start getting some help. Number two, there's also a foundational reason. There's a foundational reason why we shouldn't sue one another. It's found in verse 4 and 5. Let's look at it. Look at what the text says. He says, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, Set them to judge whose are least esteemed in the church. He's just simply saying there that there are people in the church that can judge between these matters. They've been there. They've done that. Uh, you might hear me say something like this on occasion. Whatever you're going through right now, God wants to use in you, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, even though it's a tragedy, you think it's terrible in your life, God wants to use that to help somebody else down the road. Wants to. To help See it from your perspective, to help them see it from a different angle, to help them see it from an angle of foundational truth. What's the foundational truth in every believer? It's simply this. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost. You cannot have salvation without love. Love is the foundational reason by which we live our lives together. We cannot cooperate with one another unless we love each other. We can't even sit in the same room together unless we love each other. And Paul is saying in verse 4 and 5, non-Christians don't share our values, nor do they submit to the same authority that you and I have. What he's just simply saying is this. What the justice system says is most important is not always, not always, what the Bible says is important. So what do you mean by that, Pastor? Can I give you an illustration? Let's think about marriage. What does the judicial system say about marriage? Marriage. Marriage. We just came, a ruling came down from the high court that says 
that homosexuality is now uh, labeled as marriage. Here's the only thing I want to say about that church. Is that what the Word of God says? So Paul is saying there are times and there are instances when the judicial system doesn't line up with the Word of God. And we must take the Word of God over that. So what do we do here? Where do we find ourselves in this foundational region? We've got to understand this. We've got to understand that God, in regards to your conflict, is concerned, if you would, with restoration. The justice system is concerned about what the law says about your conflict, not about what God says. So the Corinthians, now get the picture, the Corinthians were acting like they were unredeemed. They were acting like uh, they uh, just wanted to live like the world. They have already been called carnal. And Paul wants to remind them that, listen, you are a born-again child of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The love of Christ is resting upon you. You should be able to work out your frivolous, small, little bitty problems without going to court. Now, there's a third reason here. The third reason that we find that we shouldn't take each other to court is evangelical. It's found in verse 6, 7, and 8. Look at what he says in the text. He says, But brother goeth into law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He says in verse 8, No, or nay, ye do wrong, and defraud, and that your brother. What's he saying there in the text? He's just simply saying this. There's an evangelical reason why we shouldn't take each other to court because you're standing before an unredeemed or an unrighteous judge in Corinth, and that unrighteous judge needs to be one to Christ. And how is he ever going to be one to Christ when he's standing up there in the Bema seat making fun of you, saying, Y'all Christians aren't, y'all are no different than the world. I sit here and judge every day, he says. And the fact of the matter is, there's no difference between you guys. As a matter of fact, we know what's happening in your church, the judge might say. Uh, You're letting that guy stay with his stepmother, and you're not doing anything about it. You're bringing in these frivolous property lines, 36 inches. You're bringing them into this courtroom. Why in the world would I ever want what you have? Y'all can't even get along inside the church. So there's an evangelical reason. Paul is just simply saying here that suing each other hurts the reputation of Christ and it hurts the reputation of the church. Paul was saying, listen, you say following Christ is the best way to live, but you treat each other with such unforgiveness. And he says the impact is negative in the community. Your neighbors don't like you. The authorities don't like you. The judges don't like you. They look around and they say, I ain't going to that church. I ain't going over there. There ain't a bunch of fussers and fighters. and they, just, they all upset and angry with each other. Look at what Paul says. Now look, hey, uh, are y'all with me? If you're with me, say amen. amen. Good, because this, I mean, this ain't one of these messages where you throw the babies and shout amen and run up down the aisles. I know. I, I know this, I, look, I've got to preach it. It's hard. It's a hard message to preach. Y'all hang in there with me, okay? Look what Paul says you should have done. He says, here's what you should have done, church. Notice what he says in the text, verse 7. He says, uh, why do you not rather take wrong? He says, why do you not rather suffer uh, yourselves to be defrauded? It's two things what he says. Number one, the first thing he says is, why did you just not accept that you were wrong? 
or that you were wronged. It can go either way. Why did you just not accept you were wronged? You were wronged. So what? 36 inches on a property line. Two Christians can't, can't decide. 36 inches. You're only talking maybe a hundred bucks or so. Why in the world do you want to fight over that? Let the thing go. Let it go. Just look, you were wronged. Originally it was here. Today it's here. It's not going anywhere. It's there. It's not going anywhere. Live with it. If a brother has wronged us in any way, our response should be to forgive and leave the outcome to God. Number two. That's what he says. I mean, it's right there in the text. Second thing. Accept that you've been robbed. The word defraud there means to be robbed. He says you've got to just accept the fact that you've been robbed by a Christian. He says that they're tr- what, what he's getting around at is this. If they're truly born again, and if they truly have wronged you, if they truly have robbed you, if they're truly, truly born again, they won't be able to live with themselves. They'll get right with you. That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling them in the the text. He says, you just let it go. Accept that you've been wronged. Accept that you've been robbed. Uh, A Christian attorney um, was talking to a pastor I read this week. And uh, this Christian attorney said, said that when they have a Christian come against a Christian as a Christian attorney, his very first response is to try to get the two Christians to reconcile, to not take it to court. He says, out, do, trying to take that philosophy and, and flesh that philosophy out, this is what he said, 90%, 90% of his clients that forgive each other and walk away and don't go to court with each other, 90% experience blessings between the two parties. There's a blessing between the two parties. Forgiveness, love, grace, mercy, it, it's there. The 10% that go to court, always, all 100% of the time, always walk away with resentment and hatred every time. Christians walking out of court upset. Sometimes you just need to accept that you're wrong. Sometimes you just need to accept that you've been robbed. He said these are the reasons why. We don't sue each other. But then watch this. He switches gears a little bit. And he says, let me give you the reasons why we stand together. He does this in verses 9 through 11. In these verses, Paul's purpose is not to give a list of sins that will indicate one has lost his salvation. There is no such sin. What he is rather doing is he's rather giving a catalog of sins, if you would, or sinners that are typical of unsaved people. Persons whose lives live that are totally characterized by such sins are not saved. If they're living this way and they can't get right with God, they are not saved. They're lost. They're dying. They're on their way to hell. They are outside the kingdom sphere of salvation. And then in verse number 11, what he says is he gives this beautiful list of reasons why we should stand together and not take each other to court. So why should we stand together? Look at what he says there in verse 11. There are three reasons. Reason number one, regeneration. Regeneration. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. Now he uses that past term, were, in the past tense. He says, You were this. 
You were fornicators. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were infeminate. You were abusers of, uh, of yourselves you or, or others You were with mankind. You were thieves. You were covetous. You were drunks. You were revilers, extortioners. He says, every one of you, you guys were these things. But, look at what he says here. You are washed. He said, when you got saved, you were washed. That is, you were regenerated. When you got saved, there was this regeneration that happened, this washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. It it speaks of new life. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Jesus saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit of God. Regeneration is God's work in recreation. When I got saved on March 22, 1988, I died as Shane and I rose again as Shane in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he speaks about this again. Paul also talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he talks about you are a workman, you are a workpiece of Christ's workmanship in Christ Jesus. So when a person is washed by Christ, he's born again. John chapter 3, verse 3 through 8, he says, We need to stand together because we're regenerated. We have been washed. We are right on the inside. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, number two. He also says we need to stand together because we've been sanctified. It's right there in the text. You see it in verse 11. He says, you are sanctified. Ye are sanctified. The word sanctification, if you would, or sanctified, speaks of a new believer. Not only have you had something happen on the inside which is holy... But what has happened on the inside that's holy, that is the uh, deposit of the Holy Spirit of God, has in turn given you the capacity and the opportunity, if you will, to live victoriously on the outside. Being a victorious believer, being a righteous believer before Christ, remember, there was no holy nature. There was no capacity for holy living. But in Christ, you're given a new nature. And you can live this new nature with a new kind of life. Sin's domination over you has been broken and has been replaced with a life of holiness. By, the, by their fleshly sinfulness, though, the Corinthians were uh, uh, interrupting the divine work of God by going after their flesh instead of going after the Spirit of God. So he says, we've got to stand together because we're sanctified. We've got to stand together because we've been regenerated. Uh, but not only do, does he say sanctification, regeneration, but there's a third one here very quickly. Notice what he says in the text. He also says that we've been justified. You see it in verse 11. He says, Ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, This term justification speaks of our standing before God. As we stand before God, God sees us as born-again children of God, justified. That is, in Christ we are clothed with His righteousness. And God sees us in His Son's righteousness instead of seeing us in our sin. So Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. That's Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 22 through 25. Uh, God's righteousness has been credited, if you would, to our account. All, the Bible says, all, He says, watch this, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. 
What is Paul saying? You can't do this on your own. You can't muster it up. You can't make this thing happen. You can't turn over a new leaf. It just happens. Because you're a born-again child of God, you have been justified, you have been sanctified, you have been regenerated, if you would, into a new person in Jesus Christ. The old person that you were no longer exists. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. Why in the world are you acting like a lost person? Stop it, Paul says. Stop it. Well, let me, let me wrap this thing up, if I could, with some applications. You see, the Corinthians were making a spectacle of themselves before unbelievers. They were showing their pride. They were showing their carnality. They were showing their greed, their bitterness before a lost world. And what they should have been showing was Jesus Christ. So how in the world do we apply this text to 2018 in the lives that you and I are living here at Maysville Baptist Church? Well, first of all, let me say, I thank God that nobody's taking anybody to court over a frivolous matter. Grateful for that. But if I could give you just three applications. Application number one. Before you take someone to court, in particular a Christian, pursue all internal options first. Pursue all internal options first. What does that mean? That means Matthew chapter 18. Uh, You can look at this when you get home. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, talks about the way that we handle problems within the church. The Bible says, first of all, you go to that individual. If you don't go, you go to that individual and nothing happens, you bring uh, another person with you. If nothing happens, then you need to get the church involved. You need to get the pastor, the deacons. They need to come together and try to help. See, uh, remember what the point is. The point is reconciliation. That's the point, reconciliation, to be reconciled with God and with each other. Pursue all internal options first. Number two. Here's a second application. Prioritize Christ's reputation far above my own personal rights. You think about that. Prioritize Christ's reputation far above my personal rights. We need to be willing to be wrong rather than demand our rights. Why? Because there are lost people watching us. Now, I'm not saying take a hit every time. I'm saying that we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and prioritize Christ's reputation far above my own personal rights. There are some things that just don't matter. Number three. In unique situations, you may take another Christian to court. You say, what? Is that contrary to the text? No, it's actually in line with the text. You say, why? Well, there are two reasons why. In unique situations, you can take another Christian to court. Here is number one, the first reason. When you read this text in verses 1 through 11, not one time does Paul issue a command. That's what makes this text so hard to interpret. He doesn't give a command. There's not a command in here, not one command. In other texts, we find a command. In chapter 5, he, he said it, man. He said, you've got to turn that guy over to, to Satan. In this text, listen, number 2, here's the second thing. All he does, Paul asks questions, and he makes observations. You read the text again. When you read the text, you see that he asks a question, and he makes an observation. We see it in verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and also verse 8. So what we can take away from this is just simply this. In unique situations, you may have to take another Christian to court. But it is the exception rather than the rule. 
say, well, pastor, is there any uh, illustration that you might can give? Because this is like a real, like, present-day serious message. You believe this, but just a couple of uh, weeks ago, I had a phone call, and I answered the phone. It's one of our church members. And uh, they said, Pastor, I, I got a real problem. I said, I, I, I've got this situation, and it doesn't look like any other way. It looks like a judge is going to be, the, the judge is the only way that this thing's going to be done. And I don't want to take this fellow to court, but I don't have any other choice. That happens. Let me give you another uh, an illustration of this. Insurance companies. Some insurance companies' policies are they will not follow through until a case is filed against them. It's some part of their policy. So sometimes you've got to do that. You've got to work within the parameters of that policy. I think that's a reason why Paul didn't make this a command. Maybe they were wrecking their chariots and all state and state farm couldn't get along. I don't know. Let me give you another reason. Child custody. Child custody. In regards to child custody, you might have two Christians that maybe are walking in their own carnality. They can't get right with God. They just, they just, they can't. They can't see eye to eye. And the children are right in the middle of this. And there's got to be some child custody hearings. There's got to be some child custody illustrations. And so you've got two Christians and they've got to go to court. Again, it is the exception rather than the rule. Would it be to God that we'd be able to work things out amongst ourselves? Y'all see it turning, don't you? You see it in my eyes. I want to say it so bad. I just don't understand why in the world we just can't get along with each other and forgive each other. And then here's what he says last fall. Or let me give you another illustration, excuse me. Protecting the rights of others. It's always right to use the court system that God put in place to protect us, to protect the rights of others. I think we need to be supporting institutions that help defend the sanctity of human life even if it means that they go to court. I think these are some reasons, though limited, and I think there are many, many more, but I think these are some reasons why that we should and have the opportunity uh, to take Christians to court in regards and response to why he did not write this in the form of a command. So he says here in this text, the reasons why we don't sue each other is eschatological, foundational, evangelical, but he also says the reason we stand together is because of regeneration, sanctification, and justification. Here's the bottom line. Do I really believe the Bible? Do I really believe the Bible? Do I really believe what the Bible says? Do I believe it to be true? We find Paul in his arena of frustration in verse 9. Move through his thought process to verse 11. And says, listen, remember who you are. Don't forget it. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Start acting like who you are. When I was a kid, my dad, uh, he's a great man. I love, I love my dad. He didn't like me sassing mama. How many of you got spankings for sassing your mama? Yeah, it got old. Look, it, I got bad. The older I got, I don't know what it is about moving into those teenage years, 13, 14. But uh, the sass in, in my family got bad, in particular on me. And uh, I'd sass my mom. And my dad, man, he would wear me out. But he finally realized that the wearing me out part, I could handle it. I could take it. And uh, 
So he did something to me that really bothered me worse than a spanking. He took me and he said, Son, sit down here. And I sat down with him. He points fingers. He said, I'm very disappointed in you. He said, Who are you? I said, I'm Shane. He said, What's your name? I said, Well, I'm Shane Robertson. He said, Say it again. Shane Robertson. He said, Son, you're a Robertson. You've got to remember who you are. You see, he was applying that principle, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. He said, you need to remember who you are, son. We don't act this way. We treat others with respect. We're kind to one another. We love one another. You need to remember who you are. And in like manner, that's exactly what Paul's saying to the church at Corinth. He says, you need to remember who you are. Accepting sin the way that you're accepting it. Taking people to court the way that you're taking them to court. Foolishness. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You see it in the text. You see his frustration when he says, I'm speaking to your shame. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. We hear it in the first words when he says, Dare any of you. You know, a parent ever said that? I dare, I dare you. Or this is how it was at my house. How dare you say that to your mama? And that was always followed by, I don't know, my brain, my mind goes fuzzy after that. I can't really remember what happened. So let me ask you this question in closing. Who are you? Who are you? Have you ever been regenerated? Have you ever been sanctified? Have you ever been justified? You see, friend, you can't do any of this until you first get forgiveness and become born again. Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you came and you weren't expecting a message on Christians suing Christians. But that's what the scripture is talking about today. But really the bottom line is simply this, redemption. Paul says, remember who you are. Ma'am, who are you? Sir, who are you? Have you been redeemed? Have you been justified? Have you been sanctified? What Paul is saying is just simply this. Have you been saved? If you have been saved, start acting right. If you're not saved, then get saved. Dear friend, if you're here today and you'd say, I'd like to get saved, I, I, I need to be saved. I got good news for you. The Bible says that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So what about it? You want to be saved today? Then why don't you do what the Scripture says? Why don't you say something like this to God? Why don't you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And this morning I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to save me. I repent of my sin and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.